Welcome to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name's James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show Andy Miller. Now, Andy has spent his life in the world of social work, working from trauma ERs through to hospice and everything in between. Andy also has a very powerful personal story, being diagnosed with leukemia at two years old and getting treatments until he was 14, and then much later in life receiving a brain tumor diagnosis. So we discuss a host of topics from the impact of chemotherapy on our children and their development, his youth mental health story, his unique perspective in the world of social work and dealing with patients and their families, the incredible price tag that comes with a cancer diagnosis, his journey into CrossFit Iron Legion, where I also train and coach, the impact of his fitness on his recovery and survival from his brain tumor, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredibly powerful conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of almost 800 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you Andy Miller. Enjoy. Andy, I want to start by saying thank you so much. Like we have talked about doing this conversation for a long time. Um, you have an incredible journey. I mean, I've known you for a few years now, um, and you have some amazing chapters in your life. And you have driven to my home today to come sit down with me and uh, do this conversation. So, firstly, I want to welcome you to my home. Ah, oh, appreciate it. Been looking forward to it. So, for people listening, where would we normally find you geographically? Oh, uh, here in Ocala, Florida, North Ocala, Florida, almost almost near Anthony, Florida, about a mile away from Anthony, Florida. Beautiful. So I love to start at the very beginning of your chronological timeline. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Sure, sure. So uh, I was born in Stamford, Connecticut at Stamford Hospital. Um, I think I lived in Stanford for, I think maybe one or two years. And then, uh, my mom and dad moved us, uh, to Norwalk, Connecticut. Uh, and when I say us, it's, um, myself, my mother, my father, and my sister. I have a sister, an older sister. She's three years older than me. Um, and so we moved there. Um, I think we were there for maybe a couple years. And um, that's kind of a huge beginning to my story because at two and a half years old, I was actually diagnosed with um, acute lymphocytic leukemia. Um, and I underwent treatment on and off for that until by the time I was done um, with all of my treatment and then all the after effects of my treatment, I was probably around 16. 
Oh my god! So, you got it. We were two when you got it. You said yeah, two and a half. Oh my goodness! Uh, so um, that caused some, you know, I well, I had two parents that were good in their own individual ways, and there were two people that should have never gotten married. <laughs> it was just one of those situations. Um, um, so my dad uh, was um, in commercial design. In his job, uh, basically, he worked with pharmaceutical companies and designed um, all the packaging for the drugs uh, when they go in a package and all the things that they give doctors. You know, you'll see um, maybe like a diagram or a 3D cutout of a big heart on a doctor's desk for a cardiac medicine. My dad would design that kind of stuff. Uh, my mom spent her career as a secretary, um, starting out at uh, a nursery school and then um, retired from a high school uh, in Norwalk, Connecticut. And my sister lives in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, and she did, uh, for the most of her career, she did freelance uh, marketing. Uh, she worked, uh, she lived in Maine for a, a long time or not even a, a while. And she got into the Hannaford supermarkets and they would hire her as a special project person. So, and my parents divorced when I was about five, but they lived close. So I would spend uh, weekends at my dad's house and a, and a month out of the summer at my dad's house. And then I would just kind of go back and forth. So talk to me about your kind of benchmarks being a boy when 90% of your life you're you're conscious of you're having to battle this horrendous disease all the way through to basically becoming a man well when i was a a, a boy i would say you know gosh up until probably 7 or 8 that was just the norm like I didn't know any different. Um, I would, you know, I would go, get sick and go into the hospital for a little bit and then I'd come back out and I'd have regular visits at the hospital. Um, the hospital became my second family. Like we would get Christmas gifts for my doctors and um, the reception staff because uh, you just got to, you knew them you were there all the time so you, they became like literally we would exchange Christmas gifts um, and so uh, it wasn't until I started getting older that it was just like you know even though I missed a ton of school in that two to eight year old period um, it was just kind of normal like because you were just so enveloped in it you know um but it was later on that it was unnormal, you know, be just because you, you kind of felt that never fit in thing, you know? And then, um, so let's see, benchmark. So 16, I was kind of done with most of that stuff. Um, I think my rebellious teenager phase was a little more rebellious. Uh, understandable you know just a little bit of you know the normal teenaged angst plus you know added (laughs) added added more 
um, and not having the capacity or the mind to deal with it, you know? Now, firstly, what did you feel when you were getting sick? And then what impact did the treatments have on you, whether it was, you know, mentally, physically, you know, whatever it was? Yeah, um, well, from what I'm told, because I got diagnosed at two and a half, so I don't remember pretty much any of that. But from what I was told was that um, I was just like tired a lot, like fatigued a lot. Um, and that's when my parents got like, oh, what's, you know, kind of what's going on. He's he's fatigued all the time and tired all the time. He's not running around like the, you know, other kids, there's, you know, just, I think a, a red flags went up for them. And so they brought me to the doctors and everything. And then, um, they just did blood tests and then they saw my white count was sky high, you know, and then that's like, oh, well, that's it. So at that point in time though, that was kind of, it was, it, Luke, uh, ALL and leukemia now in children is like there's regimented treatment. Um, there's a very good survivor rate. Um, back then it was kind of a, we'll do what we can kind of situation. So I was actually a guinea pig on a lot of like, you know, probably drugs that are out here now. Um, <laughs> so if, if it were to happen, it, it came up, it happened at the right time for me that they were able to treat me and I didn't become another statistic. Now, what about the, as you were growing through, growing up, I'll give you a, a absolute minute version of, you know, com in comparison to yours. But when I was young, I had grommets in my ears. So I had issues with, with my hearing. And so the little tubes that they put in, um, and that is basically an open door to the inner ear. So you can't swim. So we oh, used yeah. to swim all the time and I'd have to, you know, sit on the side and watch the kids swim in. Um, I ended up taking up squash of all things, which is kind of a whole different thing. But that's, a, I mean, an absolutely minute comparison, but I felt out of the tribe. I felt yeah, different than the other kids. I definitely um, had that, you know, I would get, um, you know, LPs or spinal taps and things like that, or um, just get um, worn out by the chemo, you know, going to chemo. So, uh, missed a ton of school. So when you miss a ton of school in those formative years, you're not a part of the tribe when you come back, you know? Yeah. And that was kind of a thing. Um, I was also, because I was, you know, chemotherapy, it, 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 um, it got me well again. It, it got rid of the cancer, but you know, chemotherapy is poison <laughs> basically. Uh, <laughs> me and it, um, I, so I was really, really tiny. Like I was, you know, it stunted my growth, you know, I, I you know, and the, so that was a big thing too. So I was kind of not a part of the tribe, but also, also was the runt of the tribe too. And so, you know, you deal with that too, as you go through. See, that's, that's a really important point that most of us don't think I've shared so many of those beautiful videos of, you know, young kids like yourself ringing the bell and they breed the cancer, usually not 16, you know, it's, it's younger. So you had a, I mean, God, such a horrendous journey, but we don't think about 
what impact does that radiation, what impact does the, the pharmaceuticals have from now on? You know, is it going to affect their development? Is it going to give them some other disease down the road? Exactly. You know, and, you know, well, and, but then again, what, you know, what do you do? Um, you know, it was one of those things that's like, well, we'll let's hit them with everything we have kind of a situation. So, um, there were definitely some touch and go moments too, you know, um, that, you know, I think about my parents, you know, so like, you know, there were a few touch and go moments where I was in the hospital because, um, you know, I contracted something that was, you know, destroying my immune system and, you know, they don't know what's going on. And, you know, I'm quarantined in a hospital and I'm a kid. Um, and, um, so I think about them sometimes and I'm like, wow, you know, that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but, uh, we had some incredible physicians. I, I think the, one of the things was, uh, that I went in for that. I think from what I remember my dad saying, um, later, you know, when I was an adult, it was very touch and go. Um, and they, you know, the doctors were real with them. And, um, there was one doctor that stayed late one night and just was like, I'm going to figure this out. And it was basically the common cold, but because I had leukemia and which attacks your immune system, um, it just gotten so overblown that it was unrecognizable. Mm-hmm. But once, but once he figured that out, then they were able to treat it, you know? And that was just one of those, one guy decided to spend a little longer at work to try and figure this out. You know, amazing. Now, what about the financial side? And where I grew up, you know, we had national health, and it's it's sad because the way that's portrayed in the U.S. socialized medicine, like it's some sort of kind of you know straight out of communist Russia, <laughs> but it's not. It's an altruistic thing where we all pitch in, and the people who really need healthcare, you don't you're not asked for your social security number the moment you walk through the doors. You're right. asked what's wrong. Yeah, let's let's fix you. So, what was the financial implication of having a a child for receiving treatment for fourteen years? Yeah, um, you know, luckily, um, my dad didn't. Uh, my mom both had jobs, and they had some kind of health insurance coverage. Um, Back I mean, when health insurance was still good. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I do remember. Um, I do remember. Uh, during some visits, uh, going to the office, uh, like almost kind of like the financial office, the person that kind of helped people, um, and, and meeting my mom meeting with the person, you know, okay, your blue cross covers. And I think probably what that was is the hospital saying, okay, like how much can you guys afford? And, you know, let's figure this out so he can get, you know, what he needs. Um, we, um, I think that's probably what that was. I've got a friend who is one of the most amazing human beings I know. And his wife is another one of the most amazing human beings I know. And he's a firefighter and she got cancer. His department switched insurance companies 
without even saying anything to him and he would his her treatment would have been covered and they switched to where it wasn't yeah and immediately they had hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of bills to just simply you know save his loved one's life and they ended up creating this amazing um thing called safer straps which is a radio strap for firefighters that you can decontaminate it doesn't absorb all the carcinogens wow. um and obviously the biohazards too and he's done very well with that and i hope now that's going to help offset it but i mean like i said back home it would have been we, we've got this mm-hmm. you just focus on getting better yeah over here we're asking people to get better while they're thinking about losing their house. And sure. I think it's disgusting. Yeah, it's insane. I have a f- of uh, friends that are going through that right now. Um, and um, yeah, it's um, it's been awful for them, you know, what they've been going through. She's been going through um, issues with cancer and uh, things like that um, and all of the whole ball that goes with that um raising kids their the oldest son's uh, going off to college now but she's been going through it for like 15 years um and because of that she's not able to work and so um my buddy jimmy her husband um he works for the postal service in massachusetts that's their income you know two growing boys <laughs> You know, and all of cancer. that. And, mm-hmm. uh, and um, I remember having that conversation with him a few years ago. I went and visited and um, he's, I was just like, you know, how's that? And he goes, you know what? He goes, I just don't stress about it. They call me and he said, and I go, this is how much I'm going to give you. And they'll say, well, the bill is this. And he'll just laugh at them and said, well, I, you know, you can't, there's no more. Like, mm-hmm. I don't have any more. I deliver mail so, for a living. <laughs> so, I have, you know, I'm the only person that, you know, makes, you know, money. And I have these people, you know, these other human beings I need to support. So, would you like this or would you not like anything? That's <laughs> what he would tell them. And then he would kind of laugh it off because that's how he, you know, that's yeah. how he dealt with it. He's I mean, the like, numbers well, what do you are, want me to do? <laughs> exactly. The numbers are so astronomical yeah. that, you know. Most people just can't, and this was so heartbreaking. Well, you know, yeah, millions of dollars mm-hmm. easily, quick, quickly. Yeah, I mean, and also, you know, you see some of the things on these bills because our quote-unquote healthcare has devolved. You know, an aspirin. We could go down CVS down the road here and buy an entire bottle for four dollars, and you get given one in the hospital, and one pill is five bucks. Well, it's 10 a bucks. it's a game, basically, is what it is. So. It's this game between insurance companies and hospitals and all this kind of stuff. And so, so the, they'll, let's say the surgery or let's say a surgery costs $250,000, right? Well, the hospital is going to bill three fifty dollars or four, and then they're going to see what they can get out of the insurance company. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And so how they bill that is the itemized is like, make a Tylenol five bucks, make this, this. Now, they're not going to get what they bill. They're going to get a portion of that. And then that's how the game works. Yeah. So everything gets inflated. Instead of just being like doing it. This is how much it costs. How much it costs <laughs> from the very, very beginning. But somewhere along the lines, everything gets, you know. It, we, we're we in a capitalist, capitalism, you know, 
is is U.S. You know, and that's how we the government runs and everything like that. And that's fine. Then that works for some things. But once you capitalize medicine and pharmaceuticals, I think that's when all of this type type of stuff happens. Yeah, and I've talked about this a lot. When you have a profit based healthcare system, the impetus is to keep people sick. It just is. You know, do I think that people wake up evil thinking, oh, I'm going to make money out of sick people? No. But when you have shareholders and it's businesses and you know profit margins, that's the thing. And that's what I'm not saying it's run well at the moment, but the NHS at his, you know, the nucleus, the, the philosophy is you take care of the young, the old, the infirm. And then everyone else, you know, chips into the pot. Now, if it's run properly, you should see prevention being the absolute gold standard. I don't want you to get sick. We have X amount in the taxpayer's money. Let's take care of pediatric cancer patients. Let's take care of people who get nailed in their car, whatever it is. And let's keep everyone else super healthy. Yeah. So they don't even want healthcare it be, because it they're- It would be cheaper. Oh, and you would, and, I mean, it would still, it would probably be better for the insurance company. I mean, all the way around because there's so much inflation and so much, like, I, I don't know, for lack of a better word, I call it game playing between, you know, the healthcare system and the insurance systems that if they would just be straight out and do preventative things, probably it would all work out the same anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, know. even now, if you compare side by side, I remember it was it was a very reputable, it was like the the, the Times or something. Um, and there was a, a side by side, and they were citing, you know, actual data from scientific um, reviews or whatever it was. But side by side, the UK system was cheaper in every single field. And, you know, a high, I think it was a high level of care too. Except, I think it was cancer, but again, we're mm -hmm. talking about cancer being such an industry now. I don't think some of these areas exist in the UK because we're not, you know, they're not, they're not chasing the dollar as much there. So even with the taxes, it was still a lot cheaper. There were more beds available. There, you know, it was all the doctors were, were very well paid. Um, and so it's a lot of, a lot of mythology around the NHS versus how we do it here. Hmm. But, that's the UK now. Imagine if we really drove home prevention and bolstered fitness and nutrition and, you know, community, you could have so much more money in that tax pot. Right. And then you'd only be taking care of your friend, you know, if his yeah. wife gets cancer or a two-year-old Andy, who, yeah. you know, and we're actually, like, we got you. We're good. Yeah. We're a community. We're a nation. Don't worry about it. You just focus on getting well. We'll take care of you. One day I might need it. God, I hope I don't. And I'm more than happy to help take care of my fellow people that have worse luck than me. That's the way we should be thinking. Mm -hmm. And it's so maddening because I think that's at the core of most religions. Mm -hmm. But for some reason within the walls of a church or a synagogue or a, you know, a, a mosque, people are all about it. They walk out the, the front door and they're like, yeah, fuck that. <laughs> yeah. I got mine. I'm not paying for someone else. Yeah, it's really... Um yeah, it's a it, this system that we have is it definitely doesn't work the healthcare system, but the problem is is so many people rely on it. And the only real way to change a system that is kind of as screwed up as ours is right now is to tear it down and start all over. But you can't because every there's so many people that um are reliant on the system. So if you tear it down, then no one has anything. So you can't, you know, like this, that's the solve, but you can't do that type of solve. So, and then you have, 
you have a thousand million trillion um, talking heads and lobbyists and exactly you know people. <laughs> All right, we'll deviate from yeah. you know yeah. from that topic, but I think it's a very important topic to talk about, especially yeah. you know when you relied on American medicine for you know the first quarter of your yeah. lifespan so and far, a, and a and a recent uh... <laughs> yeah. Well, we'll get to that too. We're going to circle around again. Just one one more topic though. So you you felt outside the tribe. You know, you had some of the the growth stunts and those elements and the kind of knock on effects from some of the pharmaceuticals that you were exposed to. Did you experience mainly kindness and compassion from other kids growing up? Because you know, we we see a lot of these bully videos now. They exist, but I think there's a lot of goodness in children too. Or were you in an environment where you were subjected to kind of some nastiness too? Um, I think especially at that time especially when i was little uh uh i remember going out i always had a hat on because i had no hair um and you can get away with that to a certain point but then as you get a little older you know five six seven it's noticeable hey that little kid's got no hair um but i don't think you know that was back in the you know mid seventies. So there's, you know, not a lot of information out there. And, um, and so you definitely get people point, you know, you would go out. I remember being at a roller rink with my dad and, um, and I remember like not wanting to go because I knew it was going to happen. And, you know, my dad was just like, well, no, 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 we're going anyway. We're going to go and you're going to have, we're going to have fun. And it doesn't matter what they do. You don't know them. So, why do you care what they think? Kind of an attitude, you know? And uh, and I remember, I'll never forget, there are these two girls pointing and laughing. Like, you know, kind of like, but they, there was no, you know, there was no education for them or, you know, TV shows about it or, you know, anything like that. So, but I do remember that. Um, in school and things like that, um, I don't remember really getting any kind of bullied or anything, but I was definitely the, like the outcast, like the kid that, Oh, Oh, we have to be nice to him because we know like the teacher says something's wrong with him. You Mm -hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. So it was kind of like, so I didn't have, I didn't, you know, I kind of went through that phase of things. Cause now, I mean, I, again, my echo chamber is kindness and compassion. That's what my, you know, my Instagram looks like. I mean, of course there's, police and fire and military and other stuff too crossfit but you know i get i seek out the beautiful videos and the adaptive community now whether it's you know literally kids going through chemo people you know born with with amputations or losing legs or you know in a wheelchair 2023 is a beautiful time for all that now i think you know the war sadly the wars brought home a lot of you know injured veterans and that really opened our minds and our, our eyes to overcoming physical limitations there's the mental health conversations so i see some beautiful stories now of that but i can imagine i can think back to when i was you know in the 80s 90s you know it it wasn't there was nothing you know and and i think the uk our television was actually very kind and compassionate we had Mm. tv shows and our news was was digested for kids and it's like here's happening this is happening in africa like we're gonna have a fundraiser you know go you know make cakes and sell them and we'll all get together it was really really amazing but it wasn't the kind of movement that we're seeing now so yeah there's some nastiness out there but i i hope now that kids that are going through what you went through 
are having a different experience than yeah, the newer generation. I, I would, you know, I would think so. You know, and there's so much social media out there and, you know, all of that. But I don't remember getting bullied or anything. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, good. Excellent. Um, so with that, you're going through this kind of, you know, undulation of, of health and chemo. What were you playing and what was your exercise level when you were going through the school ages? Oh, uh, not like, you know, playing out on the blacktop at recess and stuff like that. But nothing, nothing, nothing big because, you know, at any given time I'd be whisked away or you know have a treatment or something like that so not very you know not not a lot were there any things that you wished you could do when you were going through that were there any sports that you were drawn to but physically you weren't able to do you know what i don't think it was more like the thought of this is just kind of the way it is this is like I, there was never a thought, oh, I really want to do that. It was just like, oh, this is the way it is right now. You know, kind of just caught up in the... Your actual reality. The reality of, you know, of the whole thing. Now, what about career aspirations? What were you dreaming of becoming as you... Maybe it happened kind of as you got to the end of your treatments. Oh, I had no idea. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was kind of... Uh, yeah, I, I really didn't know... Uh, what I wanted to do, um, even even through my teenage years, um, I ended up um, getting into college as as a kind of a fluke. Um, I ran into a incre- incredible situation where uh, I had a a buddy of mine who was a little bit older than me who had kind of, you know, done some, had been down the wrong path, um, in, in his, in his teens and, and late teens and probably saw me going down that way and kind of just tried to change my direction. Um, and through him, I met a gentleman who worked in a big giant building in New York City uh, as part of the uh, partner of the New York Stock Exchange. And this man had done very well for himself. And um, my friend Dan had worked, uh, done an internship in this guy's, in this guy's building, basically. And he formed a relationship with this guy, a friendship with this guy. And, um, during this process, Dan would tell him about, oh, I'm trying to help my buddy. And so, um, Lee decided, well, I want to meet your buddy. And so Dan was just like, Hey, my friend Lee, you know, wants to meet you. He's the guy that, you know, I interned in his building. I didn't intern for his business, but he would kind of, he just became kind of sort of a mentor. And I'm like, I'll go into the city to meet your buddy. Cause I lived in, in Connecticut at that time. And it was maybe a 45 minute ride into the city. So it wasn't that big of a deal. So I went into with Dan to meet his friend Lee. And I went in a couple times and then Lee said, um, 
I'll, I'll never forget. He leaned across. He had this big office, this big desk. And he leaned across his desk. And he gave me his number, his phone number. And like, I don't know, 20 bucks or 30 bucks. And he said, I want you to come in by yourself next time. Here's, here's a ticket for, here's the money for the train. And so I was like, okay. <laughs> you know, this you kind of very well-to-do guy, mm-hmm. you know. And, um, you know, I didn't grow up that way at all, you know, because, uh, you know, divorced parents and, you know, cancer and all that kind of stuff. There wasn't a lot of money to go around. Uh, we got what we needed, absolutely. Um, but, you know, just going into the city and going to the 40th floor of some giant building and this guy's got this crazy desk and, you know. Um, so I went in and he started asking me what I want to do. What do you want to do? What do you want to do? And uh, and he said, would you ever want to go to college? And I said, well, that's kind of off the off the list because I could never afford to do that. And he said, well, I was going to like community college at that time, you know, just because it was like, you had to take some, I remember my mom made a deal with me. If you, um, go take classes at community college, um, you can still live here. Um, you can still live here either way, but if you're not going to school or learning a trade, you can't just live here for nothing. You're going to have to pay rent. So I was like, oh, well, I'll take some classes. Um, and and so I told him basically, well, I can't go to like a real college because that's out of the questions. It's too much. And he goes, well, well, what if you could? And so long story short is he was just like, well, I've got a scholarship program. And if you want to go to school, you just let me know. So my friend Dan, who introduced me to this gentleman, um, went to a school, a Gordon College, um, and his roommate and really good friend, who also name was Andy, um, was in admissions. And I wasn't really great in high school. Um, I probably missed a lot of school uh didn't try very hard because i didn't think i was going to go to college because i was it was kind of off my radar because i was like oh, i'll never be able to afford to go so why should i try here um well andy um in admissions they would give the admissions counselor um kind of one person to take a chance on so you know you're going to go and get these people that have their good grades and their honors and all this kind of stuff. And then you get one person that you can throw the dice and say, I'm going to take a chance on this kid. So Dan talked to Andy. Andy took a chance. Um, Dan had a friend that um, knew, um, was also a graduate of the same school and knew the, the former president of the school. And so, you know, he did what he could and they ended up getting me in. And so that's kind of a different story. That's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And so, um, and then, um, then I, because I got there like on a wing and a prayer, that's when I was like, oh, I got to (laughs) try. Like, you know, this is like, I under, I, I was uh, still young, but, um, smart enough to know, like, this was like, this is a gift. Like you need to, you need to do this right. 
And so while I was there, I didn't know what major I wanted to do. And so you have to pick a major. So I was like, oh, I like reading short stories. I'll be an English major. And it's such a small campus. There were 1,200 students at this campus my freshman year. 1,200 total students. Uh, Very small campus. So everybody, even if you had a professor, you weren't in their class, they knew your name. They knew who you were. Um, And I was coming out of one of my English classes and Professor Sybil Coleman, who still is the chair of social work at Gordon College, um, said, hey, Andy, and took me aside and said, I've seen you around campus. And um, some of your friends are, as you know, social work majors. I want you to take my class. And that's the first time I think ever in my um, in my schooling, I had a teacher or professor say, <laughs> "I want you in my class." Um, and so, of course, I, I, oh, okay, yeah, absolutely. And so, I remember the first day of social work one hundred and one. The English class was on the right side, and the social work class was on the left side of the hallway. And I took a left to go into Dr. Coleman's class, and the English uh, professor went, "No, Andy, we're in here." <laughs> uh, and I was like, "Oh no, I'm I'm taking, you know, Civil <laughs> Coleman's class." And he kind of looked at me, and I was just like, "It's just one one." They she asked me to take it, and. That was the start of my social work, my whole social work career. It's just her, her, her seeing something in me and said, like, uh, there's something in you. I think you're going to be good at this. That's amazing. And that's how it started. That's the first time you've been said, I want you in my class. I got told many times I don't want you in my class. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Well, I always like joke around. The reason I got, I, I, they, they passed me as my senior in high school is because they didn't want me to come back. (laughs) So you start down the academic social work side. Yeah. Um, talk to me about your journey into to applying that within the medical field, because I think it's, it's quite a unique perspective that not many people have heard. Yeah. So uh, social work um, in the undergrad level uh, did a lot of like community action type stuff. Um, but... Um, Ended up working for Department of Children and Family Services in Lynn, Massachusetts. Um, Lynn is a rough place. They call it Lynn Lynn, the city of sin. The never You never go out the way you came in. Um, and, uh, and I did that uh, for about a year um, and instantly knew that that's not the type of social work I could do. Like, I just, that's not for me. Um, I ended up actually doing some other things. I did some social work part-time, kind of more like community type stuff. I worked for um, health, uh, kind of like a, what it was it was called HES, and it was kind of a community services where they would do support services for people. And I had a client there who um, was an older schizophrenic man, Um, and he had someone in his day program that had passed and they were worried that might set him off a little bit. And so I would go and spend some time kind of mentor program and we would do things. Um, I, and then I ended up thinking, well, before I go full blast into 
into a master's, you know, program, I need to make sure I really want to do that. So I did some other things. I did, sold some boats. Boats. Uh, I worked at a marina. I um, worked at a, a cubicle farm where we did mutual fund data entry. Um, and then I decided that I wanted to go in um, to get my master's. And I always knew that if I was going to go into social work, that I had to, it had to be medical. Um, at first, it was I thought well, I want to be a pediatric social worker and give back. And that was my big, my first plan was that's what I'm going to do. Um, and I actually did an internship at North Shore Children's Hospital, um, but I did more of the therapy in my master's degree, um, therapy and counseling for kids and families from five years old all the way up until teenagers. Um, and I did that. Um, and then in the middle of my master's program, um, I got involved with um, the Center for Psychological Trauma in Boston um, through uh, another schoolmate uh, in the same master's program. And she, I don't know how, I can't remember how she got in there. And then I got to be really good friends with the founder of it and his family. Um, and so then I was learning all about different trauma techniques and all that kind of stuff. It was absolutely phenomenal. Trauma debriefings, um, uh, uh, we'd call it um, trauma inoculation, like um, people that were in fields like firefighters or even um, Head Start or hospitals, and we would go and do these trauma inoculation classes to kind of prepare people that were in kind of that field um, to help them so experience their lives in their workplaces. Because- now, what would that look like? Because I've had someone recently was talking about that. I think it was a British firefighter saying, why do we not kind of have some sort of exposure at the front door? So we would do, we would call them um, trauma debriefings. Um, where it was more of a um, discussing either a current or a past uh, trauma. Um, and we'd go from like, basically we would have this philosophy where a lot of times you, you feel your stress and your stuff in your stomach um, when it's like that rawness of it. And so we'd kind of go from the stomach to the head you know, to kind of more conceptualize what what's going on in your brain, things like that. Um, a lot about adrenaline um, and how adrenaline you can have an, after you have your adrenaline rush and all of that, you have like that adrenaline dump and all those chemicals are kind of turn into different chemicals and are kind of just sitting there and they're kind of like toxins in your body and um, and learning how to like stay hydrated, things like that. But we were discussed in a round table about maybe what just happened and we'd go stomach, head, stomach, head, and then kind of do, um, gosh, they did everything. They did so many different techniques, breathing techniques, um, movement techniques, music. Um, you would go around and say, okay, acknowledge that you went through this you know, because a lot of times we'll just go, it didn't bother me. It didn't bother me. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. But it did. You have to acknowledge that it was a traumatic experience. So you acknowledge it. And and what are you going to do um, 
in the next two days. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. It doesn't have to be, I'm going to go on a six-week vacation. It's, I'm going to go home and I'm going to have like uh, a glass of wine and listen to my favorite album. Or I'm going to drive home listening to my favorite album today. You know, um, just what are you going to, so it's like acknowledge that you've been through something or that you go through something in your workplace. And now what are you going to do to, to balance that, to balance that, that, you know, a little self care, you know? And a lot of times when you're in fields where you're giving so much that you neglect yourself because you're giving so much. And so we did a lot of teaching about that kind of stuff. And so that really sparked a fire. Like I was like, oh my gosh, I like this. Um, and so then I ended up getting my degree. And so I still wanted to be in medical somehow. Um, and uh, I ended up, you know, sending the resume out to 300 places, anything that was medical social work, I sent it out. And uh, Monroe Regional Medical Center called me up. We got your resume. <laughs> now, you were still up north at that point? <laughs> yep. Really? I was in Massachusetts. I was in Salem, Massachusetts. Wow. And I was looking everywhere. And uh, and then um, it was kind of like, well, this place, you know, I, I flew, I had like a couple phone interviews and flew down here. And they, when I flew down here, they were like, well, you know, it's your decision if you want to work here, we just wanted you to fly down here. We'd meet you face to face, take you around the place. So you're going to get offered the job. And so then at that point I was like, well, no money and debt, um, or, you know, money. And, uh, you know, and so I was like, okay, I moved. So two weeks later I moved to Florida, like Ocala, Florida, sight unseen, <laughs> just, all right, here we go. And I was going to live in Ocala for about a year. Um, because it was really, there wasn't really anything in Ocala then. It was 2004. Right. Um, there wasn't even a Dunkin' Donuts because I remember one day I woke up, I was like, oh, I'm just going to go to Dunkin' Donuts. It reminds me of Massachusetts. And I'm like, oh, there is one. We got a couple now. There's no Dunkin' Donuts <laughs> in this town. Uh, and then I was, I really, when I, when I moved here, I was like, oh, I made a bad decision. Um, but um, Ocala has a way of keeping you. You know, in, uh, and then um, what you thought, why you'd want to move, because I want to move somewhere younger um, where here's, you know, more fun and cool bars and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't become as important anymore the older you get. Yeah, you this know? is the wrong time. And then you meet anyway. people uh, and friends and you create your your own your own tribe. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then you're like, well, there's no point. You know, it becomes a home. It took a while, but finally I surrendered. Yeah. I mean, now we have. I think we're, we've got such an awesome downtown. But when I moved yeah. here, oh, my goodness, when was it? Oh, I worked Anaheim to 08. So, yeah, 2008 is when I moved. So that was, you know, all the buildings have suddenly shot up for the three years prior to that. And then we're right at the crash. And you know, now they're all vacant and everything. So, sadly, it wasn't the most vibrant time to move to Ocala. But yeah. I've watched it, you know, now in – you know, what has it been 15 years go from you know dusting itself off to yeah. to pretty amazing we're in, a, we're in a huge boom now oh yeah when i when i moved here downtown was there was harry's uh and the bar was tin cup 
was there might have been another bar, but that was about the it. O'Malley's. That seems like O'Malley's. Been O'Malley's there. has been here since Ocala started. <laughs> That's where I met my wife on our first date. So it was kind of one of those things where, yeah, I was like, oh no. So but, uh, was that trauma then? The trauma side of Monroe that you began no, working? No, they didn't. Tra- Monroe never had trauma. Um, so I was like a medical social worker, um, you know, discharge planning. I did some PEDS. They had a really small PEDS uh, department there at that time. Um, uh, but I did um, work a lot in the emergency room and the ICU. Um, and so I did a lot of work there. And then um, I ended up, um, I ended up actually working for a company that owned a bunch of skilled nurses. I did medical marketing for a little bit. I started, like, when I moved here, um, there were a lot of other physicians that were my age that moved here at the same time. And so we all kind of, a lot of us became friends, you know. And um, so... I I ended up kind of a friend of mine worked for this company um, that owned a bunch of skilled facilities and and things like that, you know, and uh, was just like, well, I, you know, we could really use you just to, you know, change the face of our facilities and all this kind of stuff. Um, would you be interested? And I was like, well, yeah, you know, like I could definitely, you know, I know some of these people and have good relationships with them and, um, that might be something interesting to do and, you know, Hey, why not, you know, take out your friends to restaurants and, you know, <laughs> on someone else's time. Sure. Um, uh, so I did that for a little bit. And while I was doing that, um, I became friends with, um, a, um, a director of case management for West Marion, right in your backyard. Um, and, um, she was, she, at one point I was, I, I had gone to assess a patient and I would always go and see her. Um, and we would talk about deadly sketch and whatever, cause we were both fans of that. And she, and I said, what's going on? And she's like, oh yeah, well, um, you know, our, the sister facility Ocala regional, um, is, um, you know, gearing up to, to be a trauma center. And I looked at her and I was just like, what? And I told her about all my trauma work. And um, that's when that all started happening. She called the director of the whole social work department and said, I got a guy that I've known for a little bit now, and he's got experience with trauma. And so I kind of got in on the ground floor of that and um, ended up being the very first trauma social worker at Ocala Regional. So talk to me about that role. When I think of the ER, um, firstly, the kind of death notification element is horrendous. And a lot of times it's on us or, you know, a nurse or a doctor. And I would say one of my most haunting memories, I had a, he was 27, just dropped out. He was dropping his dog off to go to um, a local theme park. I don't want to be too specific. Um, Collapsed, dropping the dog off. Um, and we worked him right there and the code went as good as any code I've ever seen. Yeah. It was so well orchestrated. Um, what was nauseating is that particular place was still checking people in while we were working this poor guy in their freaking front office, which just makes me angry to this day. But so this family had, you know, 
saved as we talked before we hit record thousands of dollars to come have their dream holiday yeah. and then this happens and then so i'm working you know we're working this guy on the way to the hospital we call it when we get there um because it was ended up being a, a bleed brain bleed aneurysm um and then i'm doing my report and from you know from me to that door there that's where the parent the grieving family were and i'm here just typing away hearing the wails and the yeah. shrieks and you know that's what a lot of us say it's not the death it's the people left behind that haunts us but you know that whole conversation as a paramedic as a doctor like how how do you deliver that kind of news and then what is the the mental health impact not only on the family but also if someone survives that injury that you know that wreck so kind of talk to me about the the kind of scope of practice the, the skills that you brought to that role yeah so I'll just take you through like an alert. So, you know, you basically get a trauma alert and um, you don't, they don't get um, very much information um, um, because it's so quick. You know, the, the biggest thing is get them as stable as you can get them in the hospital. Um, and so there's not a lot of information that comes, comes over. We had um, inner hospital phones that you would get like a little message on you know, trauma alert, male 35, MVC. That's it. So you would go down there. Um, as part of the team, I was in the trauma bay as well. Um, so I could kind of hear kind of what was going on before the patient actually got there. Um, so I'd know a little bit of information. Um, and then when the patient got there, um, I would actually... Uh, be still be in the trauma bay and um, a lot of times I would be I would gather their clothes and I would go through and see if we could get a name um, sometimes people carry a med list in their wallets all that kind of stuff so that was what I was looking for I was looking for name um, you know how old they were if they had a med list or any kind of medical anything so I could then tell the surgeons and the crew that was working on the patient like hey look I got a med list I got you know da 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 or I got a doctor that's card that is in there and I could go and call the doctor's office or whatever um, but I was also in there so I could kind of learn more about what was going on I could hear what they were doing I could see if there was a broken bone um, and kind of things like that so I would kind of stay tuned to in, in tune to that so um, so when the family got there, I was usually the first person that would come out. So I would come out and say, okay, your loved one just got here. Um, the, they, you know, they have the, the best of the best trauma, you know, trauma surgeons working there, um, trauma extenders, you've got, you know, your respiratory department is like, everybody, um, is there trying to do what they can to help your loved one. That's why they're not out here talking to you. Um, and then I would kind of go through and set ex expectations, kind of like they're going to be in, in there for as long as it takes to stabilize your loved one to work on them. Um, and then um, at, um, they, we, they will then move that patient most likely to a CT scan or something like that afterwards. So it's going to be a while before you see them. Um, I can come back and check in with you just to let you know how things are going. Um, and 
you know, and then I could also ask like pertinent questions, you know, have they had any pertinent surgery? You know what I mean? Things that the surgeons would want to know, the doctors would want to know. Now, um, and, you know, a lot of times they would ask me, well, how did they look? And at that point, you know, you, you say, well, you know, I'm, I'm for not brutal truth, but I'm for truth. I'm, um, I think the biggest thing for families when they come in that situation is the unknown. That's the scariest thing. They, and then when they come in and they don't have anyone to talk to, they're just sitting there with the unknown. Um, and that's horrible. Um, so I would say, well, when they came in, um, you know, I would say they were alert or, well, they weren't alert, you know, um, you know, but, you know, you've got the greatest, you've got the best doctors here that you could possibly get. You have the best of the best working on them. So I'd kind of let them go with that. Um, if it goes bad, they would take them to a room or they had a later in um, my time there, they had a little, um, I guess, a little sanctuary. Um, and you would take them there if it went bad. Um, and then the surgeon would come in. And I think the only way you can do it, it's going to hurt no matter what. There's no easy way to give a notification. There's no easy way to do it. Um, the, the best way that I've seen um, from watching some of these surgeons is when they they tell the story when they came, this happened and this happened and this happened. These are the things we did, but I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, we could not, we could not save them. Um, and then they would leave. And then I'm, I, I then would try and help them kind of, um, contain the crisis situation. Um, and then offer, um, the next expectation of what happens now. Um, more often than that, there would be a family member that would say, well, what do we do now? And then that's the point person at that point, because everybody else is still in shock or having a hard time. So you go to that person and say, well, if it was an auto accident or something like that, you would say, well, now they're going to take them to the, the medical examiner is going to come and pick them up. And then once the medical examiner does their examination, they will call you. And when they call you, they're going to want to know what to do, you know, if you've had any services. So then I would help them, you know, with, um, you know, start that conversation about, you know, cremation services or this or that and kind of help them kind of along that way. Um, we then we could always um, a lot of times it would take a little bit. That means not going to be there in 10 minutes, you know. So um, if it was something that the family was like, I really need to see them. I, I have to see them. Um, we would actually set up a room. Um, I could, you know, I would run out and let the, you know, the charge nurse or um, know, okay, this, this family, like they really, this person really needs to see this person. And so we'd set them up. And then I would also actually um, walk them in. And on my walk, I would say, look, this isn't the, this isn't going to be the person, look like the person that you know. There's going to be tubes. There's going to be things like that. I just want you to know that that's what you're going to walk into. And I also want to make sure you're ready for that 
because I don't want this to be your last image of that person. I would rather have you think about that best picture on your, you know, on your mantle of that person. Oh, that was such a fun trip or whatever. I'd rather that be in your, in your visual of your memory. So I would kind of have that conversation with them too. And then sometimes they'd, they'd go, well, maybe I don't. And then other times they'd say, no, I have to. Yeah. And then I would be with them kind of a little bit through that process and then, you know, kind of help them through that. And then on the other side of the coin, let's say they did make it, but you know, they've got broken legs or there was a really bad car wreck or horse accidents, which happens a lot. Um, and, um, they're really, you know, broke up. Um, then I would be up on the trauma floor on the trauma step down floor. After they come out of the ICU, there's a trauma step down floor and I would do like discharge planning and things like that. So I would start getting, you know, the patient and the family ready. Okay. Here's going to be our next step. You know, let's look for this or whatever you need. You know, is it home healthcare that you need just a little bit, or is this something we're going to have to go through? Um, uh, traumatic brain injury or spinal cord, you know, specialized rehab or um, what kind of rehab, you know, because there's different variations of rehab and kind of go through that too. So it's kind of an all-encompassing position. Beautiful. No, that, that's important for us to hear because, I mean, I had one guest, uh, Alex Jaber, who was a paramedic, but she really got pulled into that side of it, you know, the kind of death notification and, and that whole element that we're just not taught as paramedics yeah. so you know she one of the things she said is your loved one has died don't yeah. use fluffy terms like i'm yep. sorry but they died that yeah. way there's no question they passed on they moved on they right no just and it was it was true because you know as you said it's the unknown is the worst the yeah. moment you've done that you've now turned the page in that chapter now i mean as you said you know the grief stage the you know the, yeah. the logistics of what do we do now as far as funerals and all yeah. that stuff but it, it it's horrible but it's yeah there's no no other way but it's so easy for us and, and i grew up in in the fire service not the beginning of my career i ultimately really was towards the end where i saw a lot of cowardice by that department and paramedics where they would just work the person anyway and take them to hospital mm. so they didn't have to tell the, the family. Right. Well, that's a disservice to everyone. You yeah. fill the hospital bed, you've led the family on, you've given them a shitload of medical bills now versus saying, and, and, we tried this for 20 minutes, and, we did this, this, and, and this. false hope. Exactly. That's like the biggest. Yeah. You gave them false hope. Like, yeah. oh, they took them away in the ambulance, so they're probably going to be okay. Exactly. When they already knew that we were taking a dead person to the hospital right now. Exactly. Okay, I want to hit one more area before we get into mm -hmm. CrossFit and then, you know, your uh, cancer round two, as if you didn't have it hard enough in you know, the entire childhood. Um, that same kind of lens, now you find yourself in the hospice setting. Yeah. What is the shift with the skill set then? So I ended up going into hospice... Um, I guess we don't even go there. The my job at the hospital kind of changed it, it. That the reason I went in was for the work that I just ex described, but it it because of numbers and you know trying to throughput people, it just became more of a discharge planner, you know, at that point. Um, and that's not 
it's not what I wanted to do. That's not, you know, why, why I struggled to get my master's because yeah, um, studying and all that doesn't, it doesn't come easy to me. So it was a real, you know, a real struggle to get it. So I was like, well, that's not what I put all that work in is to, you know, walk in there and go, what kind of walker do you want? Um, (laughs) you know, um, and so, um, because of that job, you really got to, I really got to know, um, how the local hospice worked, hospice of Marion County. You know, I got to know the medical director, well, two different medical directors, um, and, um, the staff that would come in to talk to, the patients once they got referred and all that kind of stuff. And I was like, wow, this is something like, this is something I could do because, um, a lot of that skill set in talking with families at the worst time can easily be slid over to hospice. Um, and so, um, yeah, it was a good fit. Um, I really enjoy uh, enjoyed working with the families, um, with the patients um, that I could work with, um, and the families, and kind of helping them through that whole journey, that whole process, and how that works. Um, some education, and um, yeah, really kind of really interesting. Um, good work, hard work. Um, you know, hard not to take some of those days home. Um, but I was taught a long time ago while I was doing my internship at North Shore Children's Hospital. Um, there was a a counselor there and she always would have like the really tough cases, you know, and I remember having a conversation with her one day and I said, how do you not take this stuff home with you? You get like some of the worst stuff. And she said, well, I can't tell you how to do, you know, how, how you, you can do it. I will tell you what I do for that 50 minutes that I see that patient. She said, I give them a hundred percent, hundred percent of my focus. So I know when they leave, I did, I I gave them all I had at that period of time. And so I kind of, I kind of took that to heart. And so that's kind of how I did everything, you know, with the traumas and even with the hospice patients for that time period, I'm at their house. Um, they have a hundred percent of my attention. Now staying on that topic, cause I wanted to ask you this very thing. We talked about self-care a little bit earlier. What do you do you know, we, you, you were counseling these firefighters and you say, okay, for this acute event, you know, go home and, you know, listen to music, have a glass of wine, whatever you're healthy, whatever don't have the whole bottle of wine. You don't have a bottle of wine, yeah, but exactly. a glass of wine or whatever. So yeah. what, what has been yours? You still have these acute events that you're giving everything to so there wouldn't maybe be any, you know, like reduce some of the guilt and shame and worry, but you still are absorbing. I always use the, so, the um, Green Mile as an example. Y- y- one, acknowledge it, you know. Wow, that one hit me today. Acknowledge that it hits you. Um, that's the biggest thing. Don't brush it off and be like, I'm, I'm a professional. I can, I can handle it. You can handle it, but handle it the right way so it doesn't come out later. Because um, <laughs> it will. It will come out. Um, 
And so I would know, I would go, okay, today, today hit me a little bit. So, um, uh, I would definitely plan vacations, like know that, you know, even if it's a, a long weekend, I would try and do something once a quarter. So every quarter I would have something to look forward to. Uh, that's one thing. Um, and it doesn't have to be a big deal or even, even if it's not, uh, and it would be local, you know, go to the beach, go to Daytona for two days, you know, and, or, or at the very least go for a day, just, just plan one Saturday and say, I'm, I am, I'm not doing any adulting. You know, <laughs> and I'm going there for the day. I'm, I'm doing the beach, beach this day. Sunday with him yeah. for that very reason. Um, and I think that's important. Um, but um, uh, while I was in the hospital, uh, in the hospital working as drama social worker, um, I got to be friends with Kevin Noon. Oh, brilliant. And One of our OGs at CrossFit. Yeah. And, um, and I was doing... Um, you know, the gym thing that I call Planet Fatness. I would go to Planet Fatness, you know, a few times a week and do the stuff I felt comfortable with. You know what I mean? But yeah, I'd jog on the treadmill for a little bit and I'd go through the machines in the row, you know, and you do all those things, which which was good. It was good. Um, but um, but um, we would have conversations and I would say, you know, oh, I go to, you know, Planet Fitness, Fatness every, you know, I try and do that four to five days a week, da, da, da. And we would have discussions. And then one day he was just like, well, you know, I go to this CrossFit gym. That's really cool. And it's really close. It's right down the road from the hospital. And I'm like, oh, CrossFit, like I'm not, I, I need to be the whole, the whole I need to be in better shape before I try that. Mm -hmm. The mythology of CrossFit. You know? Oh, well, I can't do that. Um, so he was like, well, just come do a Saturday. We have these cool Saturday classes. Come, I'll, I'll do the class with you, you know? And so he actually is the one that got me to go to a Saturday class. After, like, man, he was awesome. He, he stayed with it, man. He, he really worked on me for a while to get me to go. And so finally I was like, okay, I'll go, I'll go. And the Saturday class I went to, it's just funny. I told this to, um, 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 who was it? Oh, Wayne the other day, um, that it was one of those, uh, one of those like deadlifting Saturdays. And then you had to carry the, you had to take the weight off and then split the weight and carry it and do a lap, you yep. know, as partner thing. Yeah, man. Well, I'd never done deadlifts. So I wrecked myself, wrecked myself, like really my back, like I could barely walk for like two weeks. Um, and, um, but instead of like being like, I'm never going back there in my brain, I was like, I was getting, I can't remember who was there at the time, but somebody was texting me from, from Iron Legion saying like, oh, well, put some ice on it. Oh, you know, da, da, da. And, um, and I more took it I, and almost like, a, oh, I'm sorry, that happened kind of a thing. And I'm like, no, I'm like, I'm the one that, you know, didn't ask for help or didn't, you know what I mean? Didn't call anyone over. I didn't call the coach over. This was kind of on me. I just remember going, 
um, I having a few more conversations with Kevin and then going like, well, I need to learn how to do these things better. And so then it was a point where it was like, I need to learn how to do these things. And I was like, so, well, I'm going to heal up and then I'll think about probably joining. And then it was probably six months more of Kevin just being on me like, well, when are you coming back? When are you coming back? Come on, this is awesome. It's a good place. You really like it, you know? And uh, and then I went in one day with the whole thing. And John was there actually then. And John took me around and then I was just like, okay, let's do it. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's the problem with the, with the Saturdays is, you know, you all the other days you're coach, we go through the movements and everything, but the Saturday is kind of like just, the extra bonus workout where everyone kind of descends yeah. and we'll, we'll talk people through it, but... I mean, there's a lot of people in there's that room. There's a lot of people. And normally the coaches and, are working and, out with you too. Right. And they don't know what you know or don't know. And, you know, yeah, so they don't we, know. We should have caught it though. I mean, that's yeah. that's the thing when you got a new face. But um, so you, you, you start CrossFit. So talk to me about your experience with CrossFit and then the the beginning of the the pandemic through your eyes okay and then we'll obviously we'll get to to your diagnosis and then how that imp- impacted so, you yeah definitely first first days of crossfit from the very first uh saturday class on um that was super intimidating because you see some of these beast athletes you know what i mean when you walk in you notice the beast athletes more than the people that look like you for some reason you walk in there and you see them and you're like oh i'm in the wrong place mm-hmm. um but um i i think what what kept me is i would learn something new and i'm like oh my god i, I didn't think i could do this because i was like 40 years old starting crossfit like you know, I was like, oh, I'm probably too old to start this right now. And then I'm like, wow, I can actually get stronger at 40, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, wow, I can actually get uh, more flexible. I can actually do these things that I'd never done. You know, I'd never done a clean. I'd never done kettlebells. I've never done any of that stuff. And... um learning how to do it and then being able to do it. You know, you know, you learn and you're not doing it quite right, but you're almost right. And then all of a sudden it starts clicking and then you can do that move. It's like, wow, that's so cool. You know? Um, and then you're, 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 you're super crazy sore the next, you know, the next two days, but you, you know, you go back because you're learning, you're, you're learning. You're like, Oh my God, I can't believe I can do some of this stuff. Um, you know, I never really done much with barbells before. It's like, oh my God, I'm learning barbells. Like how crazy is that? So, um, I think that was, uh, a lot of it in the fact that at first, of course, I was looking around at what everybody else was doing and, and really feeling like, oh my God, like I'm so far, you know, below what they're doing. Almost kind of like, ugh like demoralizing demoralizing but then um you know talking to coaches and stuff like that it's just like run your own race man one they don't care what you're doing because they're so concentrated on what they're doing they're not even looking at you 
you know, kind of like you like get over yourself because they don't even care what you're doing. I used to tell when I coached the regular CrossFit class, I'd yeah. be like, "So, you see those medals on the shelf?" And everyone looks so confused. I'm like, "There aren't any, are there?" So stop worrying about yeah. you know winning and all this stuff. If you're lying down next to each other, tired, and one of you had a thousand pounds or one of you had ten pounds, you had the same experience. Yeah, I remember uh, something Ted told me. I was like super frustrated with not being able to get, it was probably the clean um, to do it right. Um, and I was super frustrated and, uh, and you could see it. Like it was evident. I was like frustrated and mad. And um, I remember Ted uh, saying, well, what do you, what are you what are you so frustrated about? I'm like, I just can't get this. Like, why can't I like, why can't my brain do this? Like I can't. And um and uh he used to be like, Well, one, you overthink everything. <laughs> Cause you'll sit there for ever overthinking it and then you do it wrong. <laughs> um because there are a lot of different there's a lot of processes in those things, especially when you're new. And so you're trying to think of all these different things that you have to do. And you're going to miss one or two. Well, and you got to put all those all those, those things, things have to go together. And, right? what point and so I would just kind of overthink, and I was all wonky. And so I was super frustrated. And he was just like, "Well, what are you so frustrated?" I was like, "Well, I just I'm so mad I can't get this. I've been trying this for you know I don't know how many you know weeks now, and I can't do it." And he looked at me and he said, "Well, are you going to the Olympics next week?" And I looked at him and I smiled. I was like, no. And he goes, um, you have an event you have to do? No. He's like, so why does it matter? How long does it take you? What's the rush? Just, you know, he's just like, if we have to, we'll do it in steps. We'll do these first or that first or modify this or modify that. And then we'll get you there. But, you know, there's no rush. You know, it's just the process. And so then, you know, then you get that move and it's like amazing. You know, you feel great. Like, oh, I finally got this. You know, when that first time that that bar floats up, you know, mm-hmm. and you do it right. And you're like, oh, I didn't feel the weight for that second. Oh, my God, I did it right. You know, and then that's what kind of kept me going. Those things. It's like, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Now, at first, I could I could barely run around the building. Hey, now I can do run around now i can do the saturday 800 meter run you know and that's what i love about it is you know it's one thing putting a pin down from 11 to 12 in a, on a machine yeah. but when you get your first hands down or rope climb or you know whatever it is you know you're actually able to do a snatch with an empty bar yeah and catch it in a in a squat position these are actual human achievements, yeah. you know. So, well, in the machines over at like the gym, you know, like the, the Planet Fitnesses and stuff like that. What do you do? You tend to go to the ones you know what to do. Mm-hmm. So you only do the stuff you're comfortable with. That's why you well, got that, giant you don't, shoulders and ass so and you nothing don't, else. <laughs> yeah, you, you do some. You get on the leg machine. You do a couple of those um, at a weight that you know you can do. That's not super challenging. It's hard, but it's not challenging, mm-hmm. you know, and then you do that with all the, the settings, you know, you don't, you know, just do enough to be like, oh, I felt stronger today. Yeah. Um, and you only do the stuff that you feel comfortable with. So you're not 
getting taken out of your comfort zone. You're not learning anything new. And that was the biggest thing. And so, you know, I, that, that, uh, with CrossFit and I mean, I don't know if all CrossFits are the same, but I think, I think we have a special place, you know, um, I, I, Ted and Karen and all the coaches like genuinely care and want to see you do well. And, and that was a big part of this next segment. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I agree completely. So, so kind of walking through, because yeah. obviously I was, you know, I'm still coaching to this day there, but I'm an athlete there as well. So the um, pandemic hits, yeah. just like everyone. I haven't met a single person that didn't say, at first we were worried. Mm-hmm. Everyone was worried. And we all shut mm-hmm. down and we did what we were told to do. Luckily, we're in a state where they opened it a bit. They assessed. Okay. They opened it some more. We got, you know, lauded by other states. But I would say that we probably did one of the best of anyone mm-hmm. in, in, the, in the country. But you had this thing oh you got to stay six feet apart well if you go to a crossfit gym if you get any closer than six feet you're going to get kettlebells to the face so that's always been a thing for us because the barbells are you've got to be six feet apart with the barbell anyway exactly and even just that toaster bar and everything you don't want to there's a lot of flailing around that you can get nailed with and then we have a beautiful outside space as well so we shut us down we did everything we were told to but then we were able to start being imaginative open outdoor areas and ultimately then um, so you talked about the speakeasy gym. So yeah. after we closed and it was the very thing that it was actually very healing for you, talk to me about how you were able to start, keep training when we were closed, wean in, and then we'll obviously yeah. get to the, to the well, tumor. One of the things that, um, that they did, which was fantastic, is um, Alex, who was a coach at the time, would do um, a live YouTube class every morning um and um you could actually go and sign out equipment from karen like a library and you know a kettlebell or a dumbbell or ab mat or wall ball or whatever you needed you could sign that stuff out um because they wanted everyone to be able to continue their their crossfit their health you know um, and so, um, and then because he did it live on YouTube, even if you couldn't do it that morning at nine o'clock, you could do it on the weekend or whatever, um, because it was on YouTube. So they created a way for us to continue to be working out, um, even through that COVID, you know, time. And so, um, yes, it was a lot more up to you, um, to go out there and find a space to do it. Um, but, um, but you could do it. I remember they did all of those deck of cards workouts, um, which I really liked uh, because you could spread the cards out at the end and you had this sense of accomplishment that you, I did this whole deck, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and then um they started the outside classes um, at the back of the gym, and I just called it the speakeasy class. Um, it was wink, because wink, it was kind of like <laughs> wink, wink, nod, nod. Um, yeah, we're closed. Shh. Um, but we were still six feet apart. We were still away from each other. We'd go in one by one, grab the equipment, come back out. Next person would go in, grab whatever mm, equipment. It wipe was. everything down. Wipe everything. Got wiped down. Um, 
constantly. Um, but you had community, and you had we fresh had, air, and you then had we had, and that's what that's when we had community back. And mm-hmm. I know when I was going, um, it was maybe there was four of us, but it was the same four, you know, every time. Uh, and um, yeah, that definitely. Um, gosh, it, it, I think back on it now and like how needed that was. You know, because I was still working in hospitals and things like that, and having to having having that release, you know, and still being able to go and exercise and yeah, and do that. I mean, the environment like, you were working in was even more oppressive even, than normal because yeah, of the restrictions. Yeah, so that was fan. That was actually a fantastic, really, really amazing, and amazing that. Um, they were able to get it organized and get a system where we could still sign out equipment and things like that. That really um, was impressive to me that we could sign out equipment and take it home. Yeah. No, I mean, they, they're all, they've always been coming from a good place, you know, that's why I've stayed with that gym for the whole time, you you know, know, since I've been there. And what a a trusting, yeah, that could have gone wrong (laughs) really, really quick. Um, But yeah, and uh, so that was really impressive to me that that they figured a plan out so to keep us all going because it'd be so easy to give up and then so hard to go back. <laughs> well, exactly. And that's the thing. They, they maintain that momentum, you know, so it is hard to go back. What, you know, you go on vacation for a week. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I talked about this just with someone the other day. I and mean, the, the gremlins start talking in yeah. your head. Well, you have your, you know, like you said, the, the probably the, the the beasts that you saw when you yeah. walked through. You have those people that, you know, are gonna they're, work out come hell or high water. They're just mega they athletes. Be, yeah, yeah, Armageddon would come. They'll still be on a on a death bike, you know, yeah. somewhere getting getting calories in before Satan comes and takes us all. But then you have the other side who've got no intention ever of exercising. But the middle group, you know, it's kind of a it can sway either way. And what really made me sad is there are a lot of people that have finally found that determination, that have finally listened to their Kevin Noons and have got this momentum <laughs> and then COVID comes in and then everything yeah, shuts. And you it. just, you know, the very yeah. resilience that we needed for something like that, the you know, was taken away. I mean, it was like uh, when you have a blow up a balloon and let it go, you know, let it go. Yeah. You know what I mean? Well, it, was like, it just took that. Oh, they're all built up. They're ready to go. And then, uh, and then, what do you do after that? Yeah. Well, you, so you, we close, you know, you do the virtual um, working out. Now we're back in the gym again and we get to May, 2021. Yeah. So talk to me about so, that. So, so it'll be two years ago, this coming May. Um, I started noticing just weird things with, uh, I think it probably started with my right arm. Uh, during workouts and things like that um maybe weak maybe tingly like i would do something and i'm like my arms like almost like pins and needles and i remember you know i remember talking to ted one day and you know he's oh you know you might might have pinched something or you know you might just want to take it easy and you know like go lighter or you know something you don't think the worst you think, oh, like I'm working out a lot more than I've ever worked out. Da da da. Things happen. Um, 
And then it kind of just started progressing a little more. I was getting more um, pins and needles in the evenings of my uh, arm and my right arm and my right leg. Um, and it was more and more consistent. It was still not every day, but it was getting more and more consistent. And I was started to think, I was just like, well, I'm in my 40s. Maybe this is part of it, you know? Um, and I kind of started, kept going, but then, um, it got to a point, um, I did have a, where it's getting worse and worse. And I had a doctor kind of looking into it, but I think, I think they were uh, just maybe a little over their head. They didn't know what they were looking for. Um, one of my friends called it like shooting at zebras. It was almost like pulling things out of the thin air and being like, maybe it's this, or maybe it's this, or maybe it's this. Um, but then um, I was, I had just started a hospice. I wasn't even there six months. And, but I still knew all the trauma folks, you know, they were all my friends. And so I, I, uh, one day called up uh, Jason Clark, was one of the trauma surgeons, and I said, hey, I need to run something by you. And he's like, yeah, you know, sure, buddy. And I said, this is what's going on. Um, and, uh, you know, the doctor thinking, like, maybe it's a thyroid issue or, you know, and, he, and I said, but there's something that's telling me that that's not it. You know, and I said, you know, and I'm not a doctor or anything, but I've been around for a number of years in the healthcare business. And I think I know enough where I'm thinking, like, I just needed to talk to somebody else to see what their what what their thoughts are. And he said, well, I'm never one to say another doctor is wrong, but let's do this in like a systematic, well, systematic, systematic, thank you, (laughs) systematic kind of scientific way. And so, um, he said, uh, come to the office. Uh, I think it was a Monday and he said, come to the office on Monday. I had Monday off, I think for some reason. And he said, um, and, uh, and I said, but I don't think you're working that week. He goes, Oh, I always have, st-. he goes, I always have stuff to work. So come to m- come Monday at eight o'clock in the morning. I'm going to drop my kids off at the school and then I'll come to the office and meet me there. Um, and we'll kind of talk about things and maybe run, run a few, you know, office tests that we can do. And so that's what we did. I got there. Um, he had me walk. He took those like, um, prickly instruments on my feet and my hands and my arms and color tests. And I mean, he ran the gamut of all sorts of things, um, really systematically done. And then, um, you know, he's like, well, we definitely kind of have an, he goes, we definitely have an issue. Um, but let's do things by let's rule out the big dogs first. That's what we do. You rule out all the big things first. Um, and then you go from there and then you start whittling down. You know, and he said, it sounds like the doctor um, before was hunting for zebras. And uh, let's, let's, let's look at things more systematically. So um, he scheduled me for 
um, a MRI. Um, and um, so uh, going back to the whole healthcare thing, it took two weeks for my insurance to okay the, approve the MRI um, with the things like, by the time I got to Dr. Clark, I had drop foot. So my gait was changed by that time. So I shouldn't have even been driving and I was still working and driving. And I knew something was really bad because my gait was wrong. You know, um, I would drop things, uh, my right hand and things like that. And so I drove myself to the MRI on the Friday, two weeks later. Uh, and the plan was, okay, you're going to get the MRI um, and they'll give me the results on Monday and I'll call you. That was the plan. So I go get the MRI midday. Um, that point in time, I was really having a hard time walking. Um, and then that was a Friday and he was supposed to get with me on Monday because he was going to get the results. I get a call from Dr. Clark. My phone rings and his name pops up that day, that Friday at around six or seven o'clock at night. So immediately I know someone called him from the MRI mm -hmm. because he wasn't supposed to get anything until Monday. So immediately I knew something bad's about to happen. So I looked at the phone and I see his name and I kind of had this short, uh, had this short moment where I went, well, if I don't answer the phone, nothing bad's happening. <laughs> no news is good news. <laughs> <laughs> right? So, uh, but I picked up the phone because there's no point in in pushing it off. So I picked up the phone and I went, hey, man. And I said, you know, the only reason why you're calling is it's, it's, it's not good because you must have gotten a call from the MRI because otherwise you wouldn't be calling me. And he said, Andy, I don't know how to tell you this. And I said, just, I, I, I said, rip it off like a Band-Aid. That's mm. all you can you do. You spent your life telling other people, so you know how you want to be told. And, uh, and, he, and he says, you have a baseball-sized brain tumor in the back of your head. And then I went, fuck. And so then I paused for a little bit, tried to get... It's funny I say this word every time I tell the story, but that's what I said. I said, I got to get my head around this. <laughs> no pun intended. <laughs> and, uh, and, I, and so then I said, what do we do now? And or what, where do we go from here? And he said, well, um, we worked with uh, Dr. Tooley, who's the um, trauma neuro brain surgeon. Um, he said, I've already given her um, the images and she's waiting, waiting for your phone call. And he was like, anything you need, you call me, you know, whatever you need. And he, you know, I'm so sorry, man. They're like, you know, but we'll work, we'll, you know, we'll work on this. So then I called Dr. Tooley, um, who was fantastic and awesome um, and such a good person to talk to at that moment and a, a good friend. She was a friend first and then a neurosurgeon after that. And, you know, first she was like, oh, I'm so sorry to hear this. Um, but, um, you know, I've already looked at um, the images and I will, it's, 
it it's it's a baseball size. Um, but she goes, I am ninety nine point nine 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 percent sure that it's benign. It's not cancerous. She goes, I can tell by the way it's formed. Um, and so she's just like, um, and I said, okay, so what now? And she said, well, um, as you know, you know, like I, I do, I focused and concentrated on traumatic brain injury. That's what I do. Um, tumor resection is something that is, she said, is in my wheelhouse, but I do not, I will be honest, I do not do these every day. This is not something I do. Um, it's rare that I would do something like that. I can, but I wanted to be upfront with you and let you know. And she said, and the other thing that I need to let you know is you're my friend. And that adds a lot of pressure to me. And I just wanted to let you know. I, I, I just needed to let you know. I will do whatever you need me to do. Um, she came from Brigham and Women's in Boston. Um, and she said, I can get you second opinions. What, what, what do you need me to do as your friend? I will do it. Um, so I hung up the phone with her. And then um, for um, a brief period of time, uh, Dr. Uh, Krupia was uh, one of our trauma neurosurgeons. Um, and he had left, uh, he had just had a baby, his first. And um, being a um, trauma surgeon of any kind is a huge time and life commitment. Um, and he wanted to do something where he could have more time with his, his new baby. And so, um, he ended up leaving and then he actually ended up coming back across the street to Advent hospital, um, doing his neurosurgery. So he was my second, my, my second call. So I called him. And he thought I was still working for trauma and I needed to send a patient over or something like that. And so he gave me a bunch of shit like, oh, you locality regional people are always trying to send your patients and push them off on me. Da, da, da. <laughs> and uh, just being funny. And, uh, and I said, hell, hey, man, this is actually for me. And then his tone completely changed. He went because he knows what he does for a living. <laughs> I'd be calling him. And, uh, and he went, Andy, what's going on? What's the matter? And I told him. And he was like, oh, man, you know, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, you know, um, what can I do? How can I help? And I said, well, I've already talked to Dr. Tooley. It's baseball size. Um, she thinks that from the way it's formed that it's not cancerous. And he said, do this. Um so uh, he said, come to my office Friday after you get out of work. I won't have any patients done. And uh, bring your disc and we'll sit down. And he goes, you're not my patient. You're my friend. And we'll just sit down and we'll talk. And so um, I went to his office and we sat down. I don't know how long. He spent a long time. He took... Um, that MRI and sliced it in every way, shape and form and twisted it around. And, um, he gave me a very honest opinion of 
okay, these are the things that could go wrong. Um, these are the percentages of this going wrong, that going wrong. These are some of the complications that you could have. This, I mean, he just ran down the gamut of things for me. Um, and he said the same, he said, um, the same thing. He's like, I'm your friend. What, whatever you need me to do. He came from UF, um, where he was trained and he said, I can get you second opinions. I could do anything. So I asked him and I said, is this something you do? And he said, yeah, actually I do a lot of these. Um, um, I, I, I do quite a bit of this, you know, type of surgery. Um, yours is a little more complicated. It's very big. Um, there was a main, uh, vein that was feeding it. That was pretty big and it was close to some dangerous territory. And he said, these are things I'm concerned about as a surgeon. Um, so, um, my whole, uh, you know, kind of support network is here in Ocala. Um, it just so happens that, uh, one of my really good buddies, um, is, um, a triple boarded physician. He's critical care, ICU medicine, internal medicine, and pulmonology. Um, and then I have some really good friends, um, who, um, he is a, um, physiatrist. So rehab medicine, pain management, and she's actually um, uh, uh, a trained speech therapist. Um, she doesn't do speech therapy anymore. She runs, helps runs the, run the practice and take care of the kids, but she's that. So, and um, speech therapy, you do a lot of cognitive work. So a pretty good backup team. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, so, um, of course, I wanted to be team Krupia, uh, team SK. And I'm like, let's, let's, let's do this. I'm, you know, I want to be on your team. I want, I want you to help me. And he was amazing. He said, you know, Andy, I've known you for a few years now and I'm going to treat you like you're my own family member. Like, and I said, I was no doubt that you wouldn't. Would you like your family? That's what I asked first. Well, <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> let's be um, clear. So, um, I, my next question was how soon do I need this to happen? is this an emergent, like we need to call the emergency room right now and I get, you know, admitted or do I have some time to get some things together? And he, he said, well, you, 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 you could probably take like a couple months to get things done, but probably I wouldn't wait more than that is what he said. And so I said, well, what's the soonest we could get this done get us out of my head he said two weeks and i said let's do two weeks so then um because of my amazing friends um raj andy and amy um at that point he you know dr Krupia was just like did you drive here and i was like no uh yeah and uh and he goes okay no more driving you can't be driving so between um Raj, Amy, and Andy, I had to ride to everything. We did a chat text thing. So anytime I would have an appointment, I would put it on and then one of them would take care of it. So either Andy or Amy or Raj would drive me. So I had to ride to all my pre-op stuff, all my doctor's appointments, everything was, I would just put it out there. Um, Went and saw a lawyer because I had to get, you know, prepare for the worst. 
Uh, so got a will, got power of attorney, got healthcare surrogacy, um, went through all my everything, anything finance related, um, you know, and made sure that there were, there were people assigned, you know, if something happened to me. Um, yeah. Uh, and did all my pre-op in two weeks. So set my whole life up in two weeks. I wanted to do it so I didn't have time to think about it. Yeah, well, I, I think if I had a tumor, I wouldn't be like, yeah, we can, we can wait a month. Let's make I didn't a month want to, <laughs> well, you know, and it's just like, I just wanted to get it, uh, work on that. So, um, so two weeks later, it was right in the middle of May. I want to say it was the 13th is when I went in. Um, and then I spent four days in the ICU. Um, let's go back a second. So I wake up, and this is all something that was discussed with Dr. SK, right? With Dr. Krupia. Um, he warned me. He said, look, when you wake up after surgery, there might be a chance because your brain's swelling. Because we just went in there and we, we cut around. And and so that's going to, your brain's going to be swelling. There is um, a possibility that when you wake up, you're going to be right side paralyzed. You know? Um, So when I woke up, actually, uh, the first thing I did was wiggle my foot because I had the foot drop. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. I don't have a foot drop. So that's the first thing I did. And then I am right-handed. I went to move my hand, my right arm and hand for something. Then it didn't work. So I was like partially paralyzed in my right leg and completely my right arm was gone. Like it was just a big weighty thing that didn't move. Um, and uh, my head was sore. Uh, there was no way to sleep that didn't hurt. Um, so I spent about, I think it was four days in the ICU total. Um, and then went to uh, acute hospital rehab. Um, and I went at night. I went at like six or seven o'clock at night. Um and uh, I'll never forget having that experience that I'd sent so many patients on the same experience of getting picked up from uh, by a transport company on a stretcher, being loaded up into the back, and then be taken to a facility at night, no staff really around, down a lonely hallway, and put into a room. It's interesting because those rehab facilities, as a paramedic, yeah, some of them, not saying the one yeah. you went to, are just awful places as well. I mean, you know, yeah. you, and it's such a mix. You might have an eighteen-year-old that's you know recovering after a motorcycle crash, yeah. and then you might have you know. And I just remember being like, then it was kind of, you know, four year, four days in ICU. I was in and out of pain medicine. I was, you know what I mean? It was kind of a blur, um, man, but I had, oh gosh. So I just had so much support. It was ridiculous. So, um, my buddy, that's the ICU doctor, his whole 
his whole, um, all his partners came and saw me, you know what I mean? Like, you know, so that was pretty awesome, um, to have them come in. And it was interesting because one, my buddy nurses are a little intimidated by him because he can be pretty intense. Um, and so they would see him come in and he came in every day. He, he saw me every day in the hospital, um, and every day at rehab. Um, and, uh, and it was funny because I remember one time one of the nurses came in there like, so Dr. So, so Raj and his, like, you know, some of his group have come and visited you and they're not on your chart. And, you know, and, you know, this person came and saw you and they're not on your chart. And they were like, who are you? <laughs> and it was really funny. Um, and I was just like, oh, you know, I just, they're friends. I, they're, they're friends of mine. Um, and I did have a nurse funny in the ICU at Advent that I worked with when I was worked at Monroe. And uh, that was interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I go to this rehab hospital. I was supposed to be there for 14 days. Um, be- but I was able to stand on my own for like, 20 seconds after seven days. So it's time to go home. <laughs> now, that's that's the, the criteria. At any so, point of this, had, had people said the training that you had done before had helped expedite oh, this? Oh, yes, absolutely. Good point. Thanks for bringing that up. Um, so um, one of the things that uh, Dr. Krupia, um brought up um, a little bit later after I'd kind of gotten out of rehab, um, and I was actually, Andy and Amy took me in because there was really no way I was going to make it on my own at home. Um, so they took me in, um, and then I had home health care doing that. And during this whole process, even at rehab, uh, Dr. Krupia was texting me, how are things going? Can you have the nurse take a picture of your head? How is it healing? You know, that kind of stuff. So he was kind of on board the whole time. Um, and so then I would be telling him what I'm doing. Um, so home health care comes once to two times a week, usually once. Um, they come in, they teach you some things, and then it's on you to do it until they come back next week, right? Um, and... But because I had already kind of, you'd learn how to work out. I, I've learned, I already kind of learned how to work out. I learned um, how hard I could push myself um, from CrossFit, from Iron Legion. Um, and um, I, at one point I did ask uh, uh, SK, I was like, how hard can I push myself? Like, is there a limit? Um, do I need to watch my blood pressure, um, be wary of a stroke or anything like I can't. And he said, no, you, you, you can push your health self as, as hard as you want. Um, and so I would do the exercises that I was taught. Um, but even before I got out, um, I got out of the rehab in seven days before I even went to the to the house. And I think this is important. Um, at one point I was in the rehab gym 
um, with my walker doing partial squats. Um, and one of the physical therapists walked by and said, I've never seen that ever <laughs> before <laughs> in this gym ever. Um, and then I ended up going to Andy and Amy's house and had the physical therapy come, the home health physical therapist. Um, but I did remember going, okay, like I could barely walk at that point. Like walking was very short distance, um, and really slow. Um, but I remember, um, just doing little goals, you know, I, uh, the, the physical therapist that I had, um, from uh, the home healthcare company who luckily I knew the owner of the home healthcare company. Um, I'll give him a shout out because he didn't need to do what he did. Um, uh, mono from helping hands home healthcare. Um, I know him for a long time. And, um, when I was in rehab, I said, I'm going to need home health care. You know, can you hook me up? And I knew he didn't really take my insurance at the time, but I just, I was going to also pick his brain. Do you know anyone good that you would recommend, you know, that takes my insurance? And he says, oh no, Andy, I'm going to, I'm going to help you out. I'll bill for the six visits that they're going to get me, but you can have as much physical therapy as you want. You just let me know when you're done. Um, and so thanks mono, uh, for that. And, um, so, um, I would do things like he would teach me to do some things holding onto the countertop. He would, you know, teach me a whole bunch of things, but I always, I made a, made a plan that I would work out five days a week and take Saturdays and Sundays off as rest. And so I would do little things of, Maybe I can do one push up today. So then that one push up, next time I do push ups, I got to see if I can do two. Or I can walk, um, you know, halfway around the kitchen. Well, I'm going to try and go all the way around the kitchen, you know. And then um, where I was at, um, they had a pool, outside pool, and a big pool deck. And then it became, I can walk one length, one half length and walk back. Now I can walk a length and walk back. Now I can do three push-ups and five squats, you know, and now I can do this and now I can do it. And I just kept going, 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 knowing where that, that edge was, you know, I would wear out really easy, you know, like a day for me was, um, wake up, get some breakfasts and usually fall asleep mm -hmm. and then wake up and I have to do my exercises, whatever they may be for as however long I can. And then out, then wake up, eat lunch, you know, and that's what it was for a little bit because body was just in wrecked. You know, I dropped down to like, I think it was like 120 pounds. Um, yeah, it was skin and bones. Um, and, but I would just push a little bit more and a little bit more. And then the more you were able to do, the more motivated you were to do a little better the next time. And then it got to the point where I ended up getting, 
going home and the PT person was coming to my house. And I also got to the point where I was getting better and better at squats and we, we um, and better and better at push-ups and those things. And that the PT guy would be like, you know what? I didn't work out today. I'll go, I'll work with you. And so then he was doing the squats, <laughs> the push-ups and the things that he was teaching me too. And then, you know, at one point in time, he's just like, you're good. Like, you know, he's like, I know you're not fully, you know, hundred percent, but he's just like, you know what you're doing. There's no, you know, there's no point in me, you know, keeping coming and stuff. So, um, so then I ended up making a deal with myself, um, lying there in the ICU after surgery and after asking Dr. Krupia about how hard can I work out at that point in time is when I made the deal with myself that, okay, it's May. My plan is to be back at work by my birthday, which is September 14th, and back to the gym by my birthday, which is September 14th. So um, I ended up back working uh, again on September 13th and back at the gym on September 14th. But during that time, thinking about going back to our initial conversation about medical bills and insurance. So one of the other hiccups that happened, or one of the hiccups that happened, was I'd not been at my job for six months. So there's no FMLA. And they were at a point where they were busting at the seams with patients and not enough staff. So after I got out of rehab, they had to let me go. Um, And so I kind of lost my position at that point in time. Luckily, the surgery was paid for, the hospital stay was paid for, and my rehab, my seven days in rehab was paid for. Thank God. Um, but then after that, everything was out of pocket until for, from the, what'd you say, the end of May, basically until, you know, beginning of April, probably until, um, till September. So, that was kind of a hard, you know, it's like, okay, now, like what you said, not only are you going through this stuff, but yeah, you, you still owe us money. (laughs) So it was kind of, or anything the insurance didn't cover at the hospital, you know, deductibles and all that kind of stuff that happened too. But the best thing was I, I ended up getting, um, my job back basically on a different team, but they had an opening which actually was closer to my house and closer to my territory. Um, And so that was amazing. Uh, So I kind of got my job back and everything. Um, And uh, yeah, I I just uh, remember going into the gym, letting Karen and Ted know what was, what had gone on and what was happening. And uh, they were like, 
a thousand percent behind me. They, they, um, they sat all the coaches down, um, that kind of knew me and they, they told them all, this is what Andy's going through. He's coming back after this. Keep an eye on him. Um, a close eye. Like if it was a run outside of the building, there was a coach outside the building, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, making sure I made it around. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, modifications with everything. Um, uh, uh, Katie, um, who usually taught the six o'clock class that I would go to, um, design designs many of the workouts and um she did her own research on people recovering from brain surgery and started doing like you know unilateral workouts and things like that and making that the workout and uh that's pretty amazing um yeah i definitely feel like um everybody was behind my recovery, you know, I don't think I would have made as good a recovery as I did without that gym. And Dr. Um, SK would probably say the same thing. He's just like, because you were in great shape prior to going in, you already knew how to work out. Um, you know, you were up doing your best, even in the ICU when the PT would come and see you, you would say, okay, I'll go, I'll do it. Even right before I went to rehab, it was late in the afternoon because I didn't go until like six. One of the PTs who I knew from working at Monroe all those years, he came and he saw me and he said, let's go for as much of a walk as you can do before you go to rehab. So we went for, you know, a walk right before I went to rehab, Um, a small walk because I couldn't walk very far (laughs) or very well. Um, I needed support and stuff, but, um, but he definitely, SK definitely said if, if your shape, your being in shape, um, was a key in your recovery. Um, and then about 15 months after my surgery, my goal when I got back to the gym was to do the Murph is, is, is any way, shape or form that I could. If I had to do a half of one, I would do it, you know, but I just needed to, I needed another goal. I needed something else. And so I missed the Memorial Day Murph because I had an awful cold um, and couldn't do it. And then, um, so I did it in July and, um, and I ended up completing the whole thing, you know. I think I was in, in the gym in, that day. You came right after it was done. Yep. And uh, that's when we started talking about this podcast. Absolutely. And uh, and I got that done. But um, uh, my neurosurgeon, of course, had been back to the office. And he's just like, you by far are one of my most, you know, best recovery stories. I remember when I went in for my year um, and uh, and I walked in and like, even the people that I hadn't seen before in that office knew who I was. You're like, oh, you're Andy. <laughs> like, Dr. Krupia talks about you all the time. And anytime I would do something like a Murph, or um, I remember when I did, um, even before that, I did the 12 Days of Christmas. Oh, which is brutal. 
And I texted him that day. And I said, I just did this 12 days of Christmas workout. And this is what it, you know, and I took a picture of it, you know, and showed him what it was. And he would just send me like, that's amazing. You're absolutely incredible. You know, I'm so happy for you, you know. And uh, and he's just like, you, you really worked hard. You know, your effort is definitely your recovery. But when you work in the medical field for as long as I did, especially on floors, trauma floors, and, and even other floors, you see it every day in the hospital that the people, you know, your body's going to break. We're not meant, we're not meant to live forever. Um, we're meant to break. We're going to break at some point in time. Um, but the people that come in that were healthy um, and strong, um, both in mind and, you know, had some kind of exercise on a regular basis, um, majority of the time heal better and get out quicker or, or get out quicker and have less you know, might not have to go to an inpatient rehab and can go home with some home care or something like that. And so I remember, you know, at a certain point in time in my career going like, well, I'd be an idiot not to learn from this. And so I remember, you know, I remember there was a, a point in time and I think my mid thirties where I was just like, well, I got to get my act together and I got to start doing something. And then when I got into CrossFit, it was even more, you know? And so I remember it kind of takes me back to my diagnosis when that phone call from Dr. Clark of going, I have to give this everything I can because whatever is going to happen is going to happen. If it turns out that I don't walk again, if it turns out I lose my right arm, you know, or, you know, I don't make as a, a, the recovery that, that I really want to make, you know? Um, but I did everything I could to that point. That'll be okay. But if I don't try as hard as I can and put all my effort into my recovery and I slack off on it thinking like, I'll do that later. And then I end up with these deficits. I don't want to end up with, I I don't want to have these horrible regrets. Like, Oh my God, I, if I would have just done more, if I would have just, you know, not taking so many days off where, and I, you know, felt sorry for myself or I'm too tired or not push myself and then ended up with, with deficits and live with that regret where I could have done something that would kill me. But if I did everything I could and I ended up with deficits, well, I did everything I could, you know, and it turned out even better than I would have thought, you know, now I have some deficit in my hand, but I can finally do box jumps again. I just started getting those back. I did a record deadlift the other day with without Ted. jacking you back up. Yeah, without jacking myself <laughs> back up. You know, I can run. I remember. I remember the first time I was doing a quick walk because I couldn't run yet. My brain couldn't figure it out, and and then all of a sudden it turned into. My legs open up and my stride open up. Or one time I was doing a press sitting down on the floor. First time I ever did a press after surgery. And it was eight presses each side. And left side, eight times, went up, staring straight at the wall, you know. And I picked up the dumbbell on the right side. 
and I could see it. And then I stared straight at the wall. And because my brain couldn't see my hand, my hand didn't exist and it dropped the dumbbell. And then about halfway through the workout, as I was kind of helping my right hand with my left hand and staring at my arm, it re-networked that and I could do the press again. Amazing. Amazing. Well, I want to be very yeah. mindful of your time. We've been no. chatting for over two hours. Sorry, man. No, no, no. Don't <laughs> say sorry. It's been a phenomenal conversation, yeah. but what an incredible journey, you know? And yeah. I think one of the real takeaways aside from your resilience and your physical journey is we talked about how medicine, that true desire to serve can be kind of muddled by the financial side, but what incredible members of the medical community that you found yourself surrounded by absolutely that, that was never an issue they just wanted to help you yeah. so i want to thank you so much for, for uh, telling your story it's been thank phenomenal. you for letting, letting me tell my story and uh, again you know, i think there's a lot of people i know sadly strokes are quite um regular now in, in younger yeah. firefighters so i'm sure there's a lot of people who are going to listen to this and i hope it gives them hope because i mean yeah. it's a it's a traumatic brain injury no matter how you look at it yeah and to hear people that maybe you've never had one maybe that will spur them into actually controlling their health a little bit more mm. and then people that have had one or are about to have the surgery to think okay you know there's this road and i know this guy that's back in crossfit doing 12 days of murph you know yeah. after having this so again phenomenal story thank you so so much for coming today oh, i appreciate it thank you so much